Our Lord and our God, our great and awesome God, Lord, we thank you and praise you for this day. We can come aside and worship you together as a church, as a body of believers who you've called out of the world uh, into a living union with your Son. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the Spirit you give us. We pray you would uh, have him be at work in this hour as we learn from your word in the catechism and prepare our hearts for worship. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I think they're getting around there. Okay, so question 47. Start by reading it and saying it together. How did Christ humble himself in his conception and birth? Christ humbled himself in his conception and birth in that, being from all eternity the Son of God, in the bosom of the Father, he was pleased in the fullness of time to become the Son of Man, made of a woman of low estate, and to be born of her with diverse circumstances of more than ordinary abasement. All right. So we pick up, we continue our discussion of Christ's humiliation. Who remembers how he spoke of this term last week? Are we talking about Jesus being embarrassed? Very good. So how did he humble himself? He took the form of man. He took on manhood, humanity. He willingly came. We talked about that, right? It was a willing coming into an estate of humiliation. He entered a period of time in which he made himself low. The estate is a period of time. Right? He humbled himself. In our Confession of Faith, chapter 7, section 1, speaks of the distance between God and man being so great right, that God had to voluntarily condescend he had to voluntarily condescend to us in order to bridge this gap because there's no way we we're going to get to God. Right? So I want us to start off and just see the wonder of our God here, just thinking of humility again, God's humbling himself, Christ humbling himself. The one true God, unlike the Baals of our age, and you could list off a number, but Allah or Buddha or whoever, the one true God does not require us to, by our own striving, construct a ladder up to heaven. But our God voluntarily condescended to us in order to bring us to himself. Jesus humbled himself in his conception and birth. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Remember the language from last week's question and answer, he for our sakes took upon the form of a servant. And as we frequently confess together, he who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. He came down, he condescended. Now, we'll do well to begin where the catechism answer begins. When thinking of Christ's humiliation in his conception and birth, 
in order to appreciate how low, just how low the second person of the Trinity became, we should seek to understand how glorious of a state that he occupied beforehand. So let's look at the Catechism answer. It begins, Christ humbled himself in his conception and birth in that being from all eternity the Son of God. The first text is going to be John 1, 1 through 3. Somebody want to take that passage. We're going to talk about Jesus being from all eternity the Son of God. Go ahead. Very good. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus was from all, from all eternity with God and was himself God. We saw this last week, but it's a good refresher text. Um, he participated in the very creation of all things. That's eternity past. Again, more from the Nicene Creed is helpful here. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, Begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. So Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. He is of the same substance with the Father, the same essence. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. Somebody take that one. It's a grand text talking about numerous attributes of Christ here. Um, he's the image of the invisible God. By him all things were created. Again, you see eternity past. All things were created through him and for him. He is the eternal God, the eternal Son of God. Now there is much mystery here, and we should recall the words of Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but those things which were revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So we'll do well to stay within the bounds of the revealed scriptures and the confessions of the church, such as in the Athanasian Creed, which we recite here, um, a short section, the son, of, the son is of the Father alone, not made nor created but begotten. There was never a time when Jesus was not. He was eternally the Son of God. And we may consider Jesus' own words in John 8, 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Speaking to the Pharisees there. He always was. He never had a beginning. He is the eternal 
Son of God. Now, our catechism answer strengthens the case here with this next clause. In the bosom of the Father. Being from all eternity, the Son of God in the bosom of the Father. This is meant to be a picture of delight. Right? When a parent delights in a child, there's often a warm embrace. And the child rests on the bosom or the chest of a parent. I know, kids, I didn't know what a bosom was for a long time. Um, but you can think of an infant lying on the bosom of his mother. Right? It's a sweet picture. Um, or a father embracing a son or daughter to show love. So let's read Proverbs 8, 27 through 30. All right, this is speaking of wisdom and therefore speaking of Christ. So when it says, I was there, we want to read Christ in those portions of the text. Go ahead. Again, see the consistency. Jesus was there at creation. I was there. I was there when all these things happened. And I was daily his delight. Jesus was in the bosom of the Father from all eternity. He was the Father's delight. And the Son also rejoicing before him always. The Son rejoiced in his Father perfectly. Psalm 2, 7 and 8. See the fatherly delight that God has with his son. The father was always well pleased with him. The triune God dwelt in perfect unity love and joy for all eternity past. And then, our catechism answer continues, Christ humbled himself in his conception and birth in that being from all eternity the Son of God in the bosom of the Father, he was pleased in the fullness of time to become the Son of Man. John 1.14 Anybody? We got a second? All right, second time. Very good. The Word became flesh and dwelt. He tabernacled among us another grand text. And here we see the voluntary condescending that we spoke of earlier. He, Jesus himself, though dwelling in perfect joy within the Godhead, 
and in the bosom of the Father from all eternity was pleased, he was pleased to become the Son of Man. It pleased the eternal Son of God to become the Son of Man. This was not mere duty, right? We've spoken of the covenant of redemption in the past, uh, but this was not begrudging obedience because of the covenant of redemption. No, this was eager, voluntary condescension. Church, see here that our God is the ultimate dragon slayer. Children, remember Jacob's eagerness to marry who? Who, is, who did he want to marry? Anybody remember? Rachel. Rachel. Genesis 29, 20. Go ahead, Asher. Nice and loud. Because of the love he had for her. Right? Jacob worked eagerly. He worked hard to slay his dragon and win his bride. And for the joy set before Jesus, for the love of his future bride, to include sinners from every tribe and tongue and nation, made glorious, he came. It pleased him to think of coming to slay the dragon of sin and death and acquire for himself this bride. It pleased him to actually accomplish salvation for us as prophet, priest, and king. As the hymn goes, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. He came to win the girl, to include us in this room, praise God, to be his holy bride. May we know what the apostle prays for the Christians at the church in Ephesus when he prayed that, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, height and depth, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. May we know this love of Christ and cry out with the same apostle when thinking of this truth, in the words of Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So it pleased him to come. It pleased Jesus to come. Now let's consider the next phrase, in the fullness of time. I'm going to get Galatians 4.4, 4, please. He's a ball hog over here. Reading hog. Go ahead. Very good. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So does this nullify everything we just said about being about Jesus being pleased to come? It says, God sent forth his son. No. Remember, we confess one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. 
the Athanasian Creed again is helpful and says, and in this trinity, none is a four or none after another. None is greater or less than another. The whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal, the creed says. So children, when we say the second person of the trinity, do we mean that Jesus is less than the Father? No. No. Remember, our God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and he has always been the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We see in Exodus 34, verse 6. The scriptures confirm in numerous places that both God the Father and God the Son's motive is love. Again, we see the great dragon slayer and pursuer of men. Think of Ephesians 2.4, right? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. This great love that compelled both the Father and the Son. So with all this said, there is an important distinction to remember. The subordination of the Son is not eternal, but only in the economy of his manhood. So beware of a doctrine called the eternal subordination of the Son. It's not orthodox. It's not confessional. It would not line up with the Athanasian Creed that we just read, confession of faith, and so on. Again, the Athanasian Creed, one more time. This is a little longer section. It's at the end, so when we read it occasionally here, confess it, you can pay attention. Um, it's a really great section. Again, there's nothing new under the sun. So this was written how many centuries ago, and now our church, the, the church in this day and age, is dealing with eternal subordination of the sun. It says, But it is necessary for eternal salvation that one also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. And confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and man equally. He is God from the essence of his Father, begotten before time, and he is man from the essence of his mother, born in time. Completely God, completely man, with a rational soul and human flesh. And here it is. Equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although he is God and man, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. We'll stop there. But that clause especially, equal to the Father as regards divinity. There was no subordination beforehand, before his humiliation. He was only subordinate in his estate of humiliation, his voluntary condescension in taking on flesh. Now back to the phrase, in the fullness of time. Jesus was pleased to come or to be sent by his Father in the fullness of time. Uh, just read Galatians 4.4. 4. At just the right moment in time when prophecies were fulfilled, just how God had decreed 
he sent forth his son. We could think of so much here. We could think of a handful, or just a handful of events from the genealogy of Christ and see how God worked out every detail to preserve the line, the godly line, to preserve David's line. And we could just stand back and be like, wow. To, to bring about this moment in redemptive history, the incarnation of Christ took so much wonderful providence. To borrow a phrase from the band Theocracy, the master storyteller brought his masterpiece to life. So we continue in the Catechism Answer. He was pleased in the fullness of time to become the Son of Man, made of woman of low estate, and to be born of her. Galatians 4.4, again, um, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Luke 2, 6, and 7. I have a reader for that one. Somebody new. Gabe. Very good. The incarnation story. The all-glorious second person of the Trinity, the creator of the universe, the upholder of all things by the word of his power, for whom all things exist, declarer of the end from the beginning, dwelling in unapproachable light, the brightness of the Father's glory, seen in the burning bush, the pillar of fire, the glory cloud, the destroyer of nations, the one who sets up and removes kings, the mighty angel of the Lord, the one ruling and reigning from all time, this same Lord Jesus was pleased to enter the womb of a woman. I mean, just think about it. He humbled himself from the unsearchable riches of glory to being delicately woven together, just like you or I, in our mother's womb. He whom everything depends on became dependent upon a young virgin to sustain him at her breast. This is low. He has come low. This is humiliating, humbling sense. Not quite the lowest, as we'll see in a couple weeks. But for now, surely we should be in awe of how low our Savior stooped. Now, I think it's appropriate here to mention that Mary, Jesus' mother, was not sinless. <laughs> Nowhere in Scripture do we find support for such a doctrine. As one who grew up Roman Catholic, I can remember as a new Protestant, reading the words of Luke 1.46 and following where she declares, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. And thinking, what? Here is acknowledgement of Mary's own sinfulness and need of salvation. How in the world did we get from there to the first verse in Mary's Magnificat, 
there's a place where she's co-administering salvation with Christ. And while Mary did not forever remain a virgin, since we read in Matthew 1.25 that Joseph did not know her till she had brought forth, forth her firstborn son, nevertheless, it is vastly important that our Lord Jesus was indeed born of a virgin. Children, why do you think the shorter catechism, maybe some of you know, I've heard of this question and answer, question and answer 18, why do you think that it says, the sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin? Why doesn't it say Eve's first sin? Right? <laughs> Who ate the fruit first? Eve ate the fruit first, right? But who was responsible? Adam. Adam was. Ironically, I found this very ironic. Ironically, feminists would be consistently angry at us for saying this, but Adam, as covenant head, was responsible for his wife. Right? You see, patriarchy has a sense of of both rule and responsibility. And so the seed of sinfulness is passed down from every generation by the way of the man. So if Jesus was conceived in an ordinary way with an ordinary father, he would have had a sinful nature and could not have been our Savior. But what do we find in Luke 1.35? Somebody want to read that verse? Luke one thirty five. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Very good. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will come upon her and overshadow her. Notice the echoes of the creation account in Genesis one verse two. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The same Spirit that hovered over the face of the waters in creation hovered over or overshadowed the virgin's womb so that Jesus was conceived not of man, but of the Holy Spirit. Now, we must acknowledge everything we've said so far, that our Lord Jesus is the eternal Son of God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, and also acknowledge that this work of the Son becoming man is perhaps a miracle of miracles. J.I. Packer suggests that anyone struggling with supernatural acts in the Bible, right, healings, the seas being parted, rivers being stopped, manna falling from heaven, Jonah being swallowed by a fish. Needs only to consider the incarnation as perhaps the greatest miracle of all. The Word became flesh. We just talked about it. The eternal Son of God became a little child. Jesus became the Son of Man. 
he subjected himself to be made of the woman and born of her. He veiled himself in flesh. The focus of the incarnation is not Christ's subtracting his deity, but rather Christ's humbling, voluntary condescension, humbling himself by the addition of human nature. That's the focus. Errors such as the kenosis theory, which was discussed last week, stem from focusing on the incarnation as emptying, humbling, or we could say thinking in those terms of subtraction. What is, what is God subtracting from his, himself? We rather reject the idea that Christ gave up his deity, but affirm that he humbled himself by addition of human nature. And here we must stop and be content with mystery. We walk by faith and not by sight. We'll never understand completely the side of glory, but we can confidently confess we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, who was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. We confess his two natures, both God and man, in one person. So let's continue the last part of the catechism answer here. Christ humbled himself in his conception and birth, in that being from all eternity the Son of God, in the bosom of the Father, he was pleased in the fullness of time to become the Son of Man, made of a woman of low estate, and to be born of her with diverse circumstances of more than ordinary abasement. Ladies, maybe you can relate to this. Imagine you were in Mary's shoes sometime today. What would your location of choice be to bear the Savior of the world? Some might say a hospital with the epidural and all the works, right? Others of you might say in the comforts of your home with as little intervention as possible. Whatever your preference I don't think anyone here would answer that she'd prefer to bear the child in a barn full of animals with all the smells and bells associated. While nativity scenes and erroneous songs have painted a romanticized picture of the incarnation in our minds, our catechism answer reminds us that Christ humbling himself included the lowest of low births. The king of kings was born to a poor family who could only offer the least of sacrifices according to the law. Luke 2, 22-25. Uh, Who wants that one? Simeon. Chuck. <laughs> Got the wrong guy. <laughs>
Very good. So Jesus is presented at the temple by his parents, and they have to offer the least of the sacrifices, the turtle doves or two young pigeons. This was a provision in the law made for poor families. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Asher, nice and loud. You through his poverty might become rich. He made himself poor. He humbled himself. He made himself low. Again, it's consistent with everything we've said so far. Again, he was laid to rest in a manger full of smells of the animals. Jesus, the long expected one, didn't burst onto the scene with glory, but truly came to earth to, as the hymn says, taste our sadness. And he didn't live in a palace rivaling Solomon's. But rather, Jesus said of himself in Matthew 8, 20, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is low. Christ's humiliation in his incarnation and birth indeed show us the character of our God. So may we seek to have the mind of Christ as the Apostle exhorts us in Philippians 2. And we read this last week, but we'll close with this text. Notice, with all the controversy surrounding the passage, right, with the kenosis theory, with things I hope we've cleared up last week, today, and the weeks to come, the main thrust of this passage is an exhortation. Hey, you, church in Philippi, Christians, live this way. He says, if, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. These are commands to us. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you not let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you. So everything he just said, let this kind of mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery with God to be equal, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So church, may this be our aim to echo, to, to humble ourselves, to, get, to be willing to get low like our Savior got low in his incarnation. So... That's all. Any questions? Calvin. Bosom. <laughs> good. It's like your chest, right? Chest. I never knew. 
any uh, practical application to this doctrine? You mentioned uh, earlier in the beginning that, uh, for example, like an apologetic application, for example, there's uh, like other religions. Um, you have to work your way yeah. toward God, but, uh, but not so. Right. Christianity because of Christ. It's a, it's a huge difference, and I, I think you can we could use it apologetically um, or in evangelical conversations. I have done it numerous times. Like whatever your, you know, when when talking to someone, telling them whatever your system of beliefs is, um, you're climbing some sort of ladder up to heaven. You're attempting to, and my God came down. Right? Jesus is the only one who comes down, makes himself low to come get his church. Right? Other questions? All right. Very good. We'll close with prayer. A great and awesome God. Lord, we thank you, Father, for sending your Son, for loving us first, that we would love you. We thank you for sending Jesus to be our perfect Savior, to be made of woman, to be brought low so that we can have, uh, we can know that he knows what it's like to be an infant, to be a child, to be a struggling teenager or struggling adult, Lord, he can sympathize with us, and we thank you for this. We thank you for the Spirit who you gave him above measure, and we, thank you, we pray that you would grant him to us more and more. Uh, convict us, Lord, as we read your word and worship you this day. Uh, sharpen us with your word and spirit, and help us to, to go from here and and not look out for our own interests only, but to uh, love and serve especially one another here in this church at Heritage. We thank you for it. Pray you bless our pastor and the preaching and the worship today. In Jesus' name, amen.